Good. We're so excited about what is happening over there in uh, Malawi, Africa, as uh, people are not only receiving their, uh, having their physical needs met, but are hearing the good news about Jesus. And uh, so grateful that you've partnered with us in that uh, in the past, and will continue to do so. Uh, my name is Ryan, if we haven't met yet, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here with Spring Lake Church. Um, I'm actually the pastor over student ministries, um, but I get to be a part of the teaching team, so I'm grateful. Uh, before I get going uh, this morning, I want to just give you two brief reminders. One is that if you're sitting here, uh, you can see in the, in the seat backs that there's envelopes, I believe, um, and that is for our love offering, which is something our elders do yearly, annually, they, uh, they ask the congregation to consider giving a gift, uh, an additional gift on top of your regular giving, um, to bless the staff. Um, once a year we do this, and so today is the last day um, that you can go ahead and fill those out if you want to bless our staff. We are so grateful for your generous giving. You take so, uh, such good care of us as a staff, and we're so thankful. I just wanted to point that out to you. And then I want to remind you that tomorrow, did you know this, is Christmas Eve. That's awesome, yeah, tomorrow's Christmas Eve. So if you're looking to celebrate Christmas uh, by going to a church service, then uh, we have uh, two here at 4 and 6 p.m. tomorrow. We'd love to have you join us and maybe invite a friend to come join you and celebrate Christmas. Um, if you uh, are li looking for something a little bit earlier, we actually just added a service at the Bellevue campus. So there is a 1 p.m. service at the Bellevue campus. You can go ahead and register online for your free tickets there, uh, and just to let us know that you're, you're going to be with us for Christmas Eve. So that is uh, coming up. If you have a Bible, I want you to go ahead and open it up to John chapter 6, or turn uh, on your Bible on your phone to John chapter 6, and uh, I'll just pray. I'll pray to begin our time together in God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use this time to teach us about your Son, Jesus. And as Christmas approaches, that we would grow in gratitude and thankfulness for him and for all that you've given us. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, it seems that no good deed goes unpunished. Because after years of faithfully serving the emperor, he's finally found himself stationed in a tiny little village called Capernaum in the region of Galilee. He's already has 17 years under his belt and just a few more to go before he retires. So he knows that his career will sunset in this little obscure town. There is no, there is no promotion in store for him. But instead of becoming resentful, the centurion actually begins to take a liking to the simple peasant life and begins to start to love these somewhat backwards people, even becomes interested in their ancestral religion. At first he found it a bit strange, the idea of worshiping only one God instead of the many that he had grown up with, but he takes a liking to the people and begins to meet with the men who gather on Saturdays to study the holy, their holy books and to pray together. And as one of the wealthiest men in the village, eventually he decides to bless the small congregation by sponsoring a building for them, and after a few short months, their small little synagogue is up and running. Uh, one day he's walking through the marketplace and all of a sudden a buzz is working its way through the crowd. He hears talk and everybody's saying, oh, Jesus, Jesus, the itinerant preacher, is back in town from his trip across the lake. And there's some sort of controversy about what happened there. Uh, they say he fed thousands of people with virtually no bread. Some are saying, some are saying that it's a miracle. Some are saying uh, 
it's the work of demons. Others are saying it's, it's just a hoax. Or maybe, maybe it's some dark black magic. But the soldier knows. He thinks to himself, this is the work of Israel's God. See, he's been around long enough to hear the stories of their, their, their God, the manna in the desert. And he's seen firsthand the power that this teacher, Jesus, commands. He'll never forget the look on his servant's face, writhing in agony in bed, tortured with pain, when Jesus, still blocks away, spoke the words that restored him to life. And he watched the transformation take place before his eyes. So naturally, if Jesus is in town, he's curious. He heads across town towards the synagogue, but when he gets there, the crowd is pouring out of the doors, and yet they make room, they part ways for him, a man of such high status, even a Gentile, and they let him come in the back. He stands near the back wall, but he's just close enough that he can hear the dialogue and the dispute going on. A crowd has followed Jesus back from across the lake, and there's some sort of disagreement going on as Jesus is teaching and explaining. And as the man listens in on the conversation, he is faced with a choice, a fork in the road. He has to decide, is this man absolutely crazy? (laughs) Or is he somehow, some way, Yahweh, Israel's God, the giver of life? And he'll never be the same. We're going to listen in on that conversation, if you have a Bible. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 25. I want to just read the whole thing out loud for you, because we're not going to get to look at each individual verse, but I want you to be there with me in the synagogue in Capernaum. Here it is, verse 25 of chapter 6. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And so they asked him, what sign will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. (laughs) Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall not lose uh, I, will not, I will lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Well, at this, the Jews began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, 
Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Well, there it is. If you have been following along with us the last few weeks, we've been in this series called I Am, where we're looking at uh, the occurrences in John where Jesus uses this phrase, I am, to teach something about himself. And we noted at the very beginning that Jesus using this phrase, I am, is a hyperlink back to Exodus chapter 3 and 4 where uh, Moses meets Yahweh, the God of Israel, and he says, "Um, this is my name, I am. And so Jesus is saying, that's who I am. I am Yahweh, and we've seen, he said, I am uh, the bread, or I am the gate. Uh, we saw, I am the resurrection and the life. Um, we're going to hear from Pastor Jack, I am the good shepherd. Pastor Bill talked about, I am the true vine. And today we're talking about Jesus' phrase, I am the bread of life. And I want to just unpack what that means. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, uh, and I wonder if we pulled the room, what do you think Jesus means when he says, I am the bread of life? And I'm going to tell you what I think. Uh, and then we're just going to look at that a little bit. So uh, this, if you're following along in your bulletin, you can fill this in or the, it'll be up on the screen. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I think he means this. I am God's gift of life for malnourished people to receive. Jesus says, I am God's gift of life for malnourished people to receive. And I'm just going to unpack each piece of that sentence for us as we go along, and highlighting where I think this comes from in the text that we read. So, first of all, Jesus is God's gift. Jesus is God's gift. I hope, as you read, I know there was a lot there, but I hope you noticed the repetition of the phrase give in this passage. Jesus says um, that he has uh, come to give life. He's the bread of life that God gives. Look at verse 32, if you're following along. He says, very truly, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is the one that comes down from heaven and gives his life for the world. Heaven there doesn't mean the sky. It means God's space, God's realm, his command center. 
And so Jesus says he is a gift. He's given from God. Other uh, parts of the passage, he says, I've come down from heaven. And then also talks about being sent by God. So all of those phrases connote what theologians call Jesus' condescension. His condescension, which is talking about the fact that Jesus existed before he was incarnate. Mind blown. So he existed in the presence of God in this glorified state. He was with God, and yet he decided to come down to earth and become a human being. He humbled himself, reaching out to us, reaching out to humanity. It shows how much love God has for us, how much Jesus loves us, and how humble he is, that he's a, he's a gift. Now, I wonder, how do you, how do you view God? Do you think of God as a uh, kind of angry father who has his arms crossed and is waiting for you to do something good so he can give you good gifts, waiting for you to please him? Or do you think of God as a generous giver who's just eager to give good gifts? Do you think about Jesus like Santa Claus? <laughs> he sees you when you're sleeping. Come on, he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good, for goodness sake. Sometimes in the Midwest, that can be our conception of God, that he's just waiting for us to live good lives, maybe go to church, donate to church or charities, right, to live good lives, that we can kind of earn our way, we can achieve God's pleasure, that he'll be pleased with us, he'll be happy with us. But the picture of God in the Bible is, is so much different than that. It's the fact that we, there's nothing desirable about us. There's nothing good about us, but God is just gracious. He's a gracious gift giver. He's kind of the opposite of Santa Claus. It would be more like this. He sees you when you're, he sees your disobedience. He knows that you're a fake. He knows that you've been bad and not good. So he gave his life for your sake. That's, that's Jesus. That Jesus is a gift for people who don't deserve it. Not that we've earned something. I think that's part of what he's saying. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am God's gift. Well, what kind of gift? What kind of gift is Jesus? He is a gift of life. Jesus is God's gift of life. In verse 35, look at what it says. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread which consists of life, or the bread that brings life. But what kind of life is he talking about? Is he talking about your best life now? Is he talking about money in the bank account? Is he talking about material wealth or happiness? No, he actually tells us what kind of life he's talking about in verse 40. He says, my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes shall have what? Eternal life. Eternal life. And again, in verse 47, very truly, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. So he's talking about eternal life. Now do this. This is strange for Sunday morning, so it might weird you out. Turn to the person next to you and tell them, what do you think Jesus means when he says eternal life? You have 30 seconds. Go. Wow, you guys did great. That was less than 30 seconds. Okay, I'm not going to pull, the, I'm not going to ask individuals, but if I had to ask for a show of hands, how many of you said something like uh, going to heaven? Something like that? 
Okay, all right, maybe not, okay. Uh, that's at least the way that I grew up being taught. That's what eternal life means, that when you die, you go to be with God in heaven. But primarily in the New Testament, the phrase eternal life is talking about something in the future, not something that happens when we die, but it's talking about life in the age to come. This idea that God's going to bring about this new age where he renews the universe, a new heavens and a new earth, and gives his people resurrection bodies. That's what it's referring to primarily. Uh, if you don't believe me, Mark chapter 10 verse 30 says that eternal life comes in the age to come. In the age to come. So it is uh, zoe ionias, life in the age to come. Uh, now you say, ah, but wait a second. We talk about eternal life like something you have presently. Like, if I asked you, do you believe that you have eternal life? Are you saved? You would say, yes. And, and maybe you noticed, in verse 40, it's uh, the present tense. Verse 40, whoever believes in the Son shall have eternal life. That's present subjunctive. That's in the present, right? So there's a present aspect to it. And, Jesus says, and I will raise them up at the last day. So it's resurrection, that's future, but with the ministry of Jesus, Jesus has started bringing the future into the present so that you can know now, you can have this experience, this, this foretaste of the future to come in the present and know with certainty that you have eternal life, that you will have eternal life in the age to come. That's the kind of life that Jesus is promising. I know that's a tough concept, so here's something that's been helpful for me. Uh, I think about my phone. Uh, many of us have smartphones, and uh, the way it works is that there's hardware, right, that's the actual physical thing that's going on and the processor inside it, but then there's also software, software, which is the systems that run on this thing and the information that uh, run on my phone. Now, if this phone is getting old, then I could go and, I could go and buy a new one, right, I could get new, new hardware, um, but what often happens is every once in a while I get this notification on my phone that says you have a software update, right? You know this? Okay, so then I have to plug it in and it downloads new software. My information on my phone is stored actually in the cloud, right? right? So, uh, I mean, I can literally, uh, I can transfer this phone to another phone because my information is stored in the cloud. And this phone, it might get beat up, I might crack the screen, probably in six months, it'll be obsolete, like it won't actually work anymore on the current software because they update so often. And what will happen then is my data will be uploaded and then transferred to this new hardware. That's the sort of thing that we're talking about with eternal life. Eternal life is the promise that one day, though we're in this current hardware <laughs> that's breaking down, I mean, how many of us woke up in a little bit of pain this morning, a little bit of stiffness, right? We had to shovel or whatever it was, brush our car off, right? We're in this present system, this present hardware, and yet the promise is one day eternal life, a brand new phone that will never get bugs, that will never have the screen crack, uh, that will never die, the battery never goes out. That's the promise of resurrection. And if we presently have eternal life, the promise is that we've been uploaded to the cloud, that in God's mind, we are saved. <laughs> We're, our information is stored. It's saved. And one day, when Jesus returns, we'll be downloaded into this new hardware, that we'll get these new bodies, this resurrection life. But in the meantime, we've received a software update. That's right. In this old phone, in this old body, we've gotten the beta version of the next, <laughs> of the next thing to come that we've started experiencing eternal life in the present. That's, the, that's what Jesus promises. Now you're like, okay, that's kind of heady. What does it have to do with today? What does it have to do with like now? Well, it's Christmas season, and I know that for many of us, Christmas is, is exciting and, 
and happy, but I also know that it can be a really painful time of year. Man, I've had so many conversations in the last week with people who are either watching their loved ones slowly deteriorate or themselves are slowly deteriorating or watching their grandparents or watching their family members honestly die. And some of us are really mourning for the first time family members we lost last year. Like Christmas is not going to be the same this year because we've lost loved ones. And so we have the promise of a gift of eternal life. That's the promise that these deteriorating, dying bodies are not the last experience of physicality that we'll have, that our loved ones will have if they know Jesus. That the suffering that we're going through right now will not compare with the glory to follow. That's the promise of eternal life, life unending. Life unending, that's good news. That ought to bring us hope. And then for everybody, it's not, it's not always physical ailments. Some of us are struggling emotionally. There's depression. There's anxiety. There's distress. There's stress in our relationships. The promise of eternal life is that one day we will live in a world where none of that exists. <laughs> That's amazing. That's good news. And we can hold on to that hope. Jesus is God's gift of life. Now, maybe you're like, well, I'm doing fine. I'm healthy. I'm young. There's nothing really... Uh, wrong in my life, or so it seems, I would beg to differ, because Jesus is God's gift of life for malnourished people, which I believe we all are, in some sense, malnourished. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 35, Jesus says this, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, what's funny is that uh, Jesus' listeners misunderstand him. They're talking about real, actual bread and drink. He's talking about something on a different plane. He's talking about a deeper, a deeper, more essential need. And here's the problem that humans have. We all have this need, uh, is that we need food. How many of you are hungry right now? A little bit? Yeah, I had too much coffee. I'm a little bit hungry up here, okay? So we all need food, and uh, once you eat, how long does it take you before you're hungry again? Not long. <laughs> Not long. Try and measure this today. All right, we're going to family dinners. We're going to Christmas celebrations. We're going to stuff ourselves. And then you know you're going to be hungry later on. And so we're always hungry. We're always having to take in more. There is no food that you can take in that will sustain you forever. There is no drink that you can take in that will sustain you forever. And the, the other problem is that food it perishes. It spoils. A lot of us are going to pack Christmas uh, leftovers into our refrigerators, and if we let them wait for, you know, more than a week, they're going to start to get those speckles on them, right? There's a problem that humans have. And theologians have noticed, for a long time have noted, that this essential problem that human beings have, that every single need that we have uh, cannot ultimately be fulfilled. None of the, none of the things that we desire are designed to actually meet those needs. So uh, you will never actually have your thirst quenched totally. You'll always need more. You'll never actually have your hunger satisfied. You'll always need more. You'll never actually have all of your romantic desires fulfilled. You will always need more. And that's intentional. That's intentional. That's built into the system by God to remind us that we are contingent, that we are dependent beings. And those desires, those needs point beyond themselves to a deeper, a more essential need that we have. Which is why I say Jesus is God's gift for malnourished people, not hungry people. Because you can be full 
you can be full and be malnourished. You can die of malnourishment and have a full tummy. Many of us are full. Many of us are full. We're entertained. We're comfortable. We are warm. We're well-fed. But how many of us are well-nourished? See, what our hearts, what our souls really long, what we really need is a connection with our maker, a relationship with God who is. We were designed for relationship with God. And unless we have it, unless we have that, there will always be an aching, there will always be a longing that we are unable to fill. Augustine, St. Augustine said it like this. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until we find rest in you. Some of you experienced that before coming to Jesus, this God-shaped hole in your life, and you feel that filled by Jesus. That's what's going on when Jesus says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry and will never thirst. He wants to provide nourishment for our deepest longings. A great example of being full but not uh, nourished are what happens with our smartphones. Again, to use the illustration, um, people are more connected now than they ever have been. You have more information at your fingertips than the human race ever before. You can order anything online and it will ship to your house in a day. We have everything that we need. More available to us than ever before. And yet, suicide rates are increasing at alarming, alarming speed amongst our young people. They are more, we are more anxious, we are more stressed, we are more depressed than any generation. I mean, than people who lived through the Great Depression. What is that? What is that? I think partly because we've lost con- real connections with people and we've substituted them for something fake, for something cheap, but also because I think our culture has lost this connection with God, the one who gives life, the one who nourishes our souls. So how do you, how do you get that? How do you get that nourishment that Jesus provides? It's simple. It's not easy. It's simple. Spend time with Jesus. To spend time, turn off your phone, turn off your notifications, Right? Open up a physical Bible so that you don't get push notifications and sit in quiet and silence with God and pray and read his word and hear from him. If you've not been reading the Bible, open up John. Just start reading through the book of John. Set aside some time. Just get alone with God and pray and say, God, would you nourish my soul? I have this longing. I have this deep longing for you. I'm not satisfied. Would you meet this need? Do that. Test God. Do that for 30 days. And I, I am willing to bet that you will find nourishment for your weary soul. Jesus is God's gift of life for malnourished people. But it's not enough to just be given a gift. You have to receive it, which is our final piece of this sentence. That God's, uh, Jesus is God's gift of, mal- of life for malnourished people to receive. To receive. Now look at verse 51 with me. Jesus says this. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Now, our Catholic brothers and sisters for a long time have taken these verses to be uh, explaining the meaning and the real substance of what's going on during the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or 
communion, and they, are, uh, and they believe that Jesus' words are explaining what's happening in that symbolic meal. But I, I think we need to look at the context in which this speech of Jesus is found. Uh, go ahead and scan your Bibles, look above and below. Uh, where is Jesus when he's giving this sermon? He's nowhere near the upper room where he institutes the Lord's Supper and says, this is my body, this is my blood. In fact, did you know this? Those words are never recorded in the book of John. Jesus never says, this is my body, this is my blood, in the book of John. John's the last of the Gospels that are written, and so some scholars think that by the time good old John is writing his Gospel, that there's become a kind of a magic superstition about the meal, about communion, and so John intentionally leaves those words out and never has Jesus institute the Lord's Supper in his Gospel. I think it's important to understand Jesus' words in context. What is he talking about? And I do not think it is about specifically about communion. I want to show you what I do think it's talking about. Um, the, the Jews are asking him, um, what must we do, in verse 28, what must we do to do the work that God requires? What, what should we do? In verse 29, he tells them, this is, what, this is what God wants from you. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Verse 35, he says, whoever uh, is hungry, sorry, whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Verse 40, uh, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. Verse 47, very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. So how do you get eternal life? You believe. You believe. Four other times in the book of John. John connects belief with eternal life. How do you receive eternal life? What does it mean to receive God's gift? It's believing in the Son. That's so crucial. That's so important because in the next paragraph, after saying four times, believe in Jesus to get eternal life. You believe, you believe, you believe. Then Jesus says something different, right? He says, if you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, you will live forever. We go, what the hell? What is going on? Right? I do not believe that Jesus is contradicting himself. In fact, I, what I think is Jesus has explained it to them simply, believe in me and you'll have eternal life. And now he explains it to them using a metaphor of feeding on him. Here's why I think that. I'm going to show you the parallelism here. Uh, in verse 40, do we have the slides? Are we, are we working with slides this morning? No? Okay. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can find it. There it is. Okay, great. Um, so in verse 40, Jesus says this, My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise them up at the last day. John 6.54, almost the exact same wording in Greek. The last two uh, clauses there are almost exactly the same. Has eternal life, and I'll raise them up at the last day. The only thing that's different between these two sentences is whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood. Right? The very same things. If you believe in the Son, look to the Son and believe in Him, you'll have eternal life, and He'll raise you up at the last day. And if you eat His flesh and drink His blood, You'll have eternal life, and he'll raise you up at the last day. Jesus is communicating through a metaphor that the way to come to him, the way to receive him, uh, is by believing in him. Now, why would he choose that metaphor? Oh, my gosh, right? Could have spared us, you know, centuries of confusion. I think it's because it's a, it's a really visceral understanding. That, that it's, a, it's a powerful picture that we are nourished by Jesus, that we benefit from his death, and his resurrection in a way, in the same way that we benefit from food, that we have to take it in, that we have to receive it, and it is nourishment for us. It's nourishment for us. That's what I think he's saying, that if you um, believe in the Son, 
that you will have eternal life. So what does he mean when he says, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink? I think he means the same thing that, when he's, that he means when he says, I am the true light. Is he literally light? No. Uh, he says, I am the true vine. Is he, is he literally a vine? No, no. He's saying that he is the reality to which those things point. He is the reality to which food and drink point. He's the source of nourishment. He's the true sustenance. He's the one who truly gives life, who gives what food and drink fail to do. And if we are malnourished, if we are destined to die like every single one of us is, the way to receive life, the way to receive nourishment is by receiving the Son, by believing in the Son of God, God's gift to us. When I was uh, a little boy, um, my parents would have this sort of back and forth battle with my grandparents. My grandparents at Christmas time or birthdays would try and give us money, and my parents knew that they didn't really have the money to give. <laughs> and so uh, grandma or grandpa would slip a 20 in, you know, our hands and say, you know, take this and take it home. And, and then my parents would say, no, no, go give that back. And so we'd have this little, you know, like espionage kind of thing where we'd sneak over and like drop it in their purse or try and slip it in my grandpa's coat pocket. Have you ever tried to give a gift to someone that didn't want it? Uh, it, it doesn't really work. <laughs> in order, if you're given a gift, uh, you have to do what? You have to receive it. You have to receive it. And the same is true about Jesus, that he is God's gift of life for us, for malnourished people. But it's up to you whether or not you want to receive him. And so I wonder if you've received Jesus. I wonder if you've received the gift of eternal life, if you have received him. Not just, yes, I know he's real. Yes, I know he exists. These people knew Jesus was real. They knew he existed. But he's calling on them to receive him, to believe in him. If you've never done that, I would love to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. All it takes is saying to Jesus, listen, I've lived my own life. I've done things my own way. I am malnourished. I'm hurting here. I have a deep need, and I'm willing to try anything. I will give my life to you. I turn from doing things my own way. I don't want to run my life anymore. I want to give my life to you. Please forgive me. Come into my life and transform me from the inside out. If that's you this morning, I would love to give you a chance to do that. So I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads with me. Bow your heads with me. And if that's you and you want to give your life to Jesus this morning, I'm just going to ask you to pray these words along with me. Say something like this to God. Say, God, I am so sorry for all that I've done. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. I deserve condemnation but I'm so grateful that you've loved me enough to send Jesus in my place to die for me I need you would you please come into my life would you forgive me and transform me from the inside out I want eternal life I want to know you I want the nourishment that Jesus provides